Good evening and welcome to House C Internet Radio. We want to welcome you to uh, our broadcast for tonight. Um, our special guest tonight um, will be Miss uh, Anita Watt Nunn um, from Birmingham, Alabama. She's the first black female police officer, uh, police chief there in Birmingham, Alabama. And she's going to be talking about um, um, being a police chief and reflecting on the times, her time in office and current police, uh, state of police uh, in the um, in the uh, state of Alabama and uh, across the nation. We hope that um, we hope that uh, you will stay with us as we are. Um, wait for her to join us in about uh, five or six minutes or so. Um, we are coming to you live from uh, 231 6th Avenue here in Beatrice, Alabama. And our topic for tonight is uh, Anita Watts-Nunn um, as the Birmingham first black female officer, police chief. Uh, Birmingham first black female Police chief and reflects on the times in office and current uh, police in, in America. We hope that you will be with us and um, enjoy the uh, broadcast. All right. Um, let's go back to our studio here. We are waiting for Miss Nunn to call in. Um, we hope you have enjoyed the broadcast that we have been bringing your way here. Okay. Hello. Hello. I'll keep getting them. Uh, um, let's see here. I'm keep getting, uh, this this Hello, Miss Nunn. Okay, hold on just a second. Let me turn you on your video. Hey, good evening. How you doing? Oh, we went right back off. Let me turn it back to you. Let me. All right, I got you. All right, we need to change to go into another room. Oh, okay. Time to see. We, make we, sure that I can get on. Yeah, we still got about about five minutes for seven thirty. Yeah, I was hey, trying to get on early. Yeah. How you been doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Okay. Um, I've been uh, working in the garden out there at the J.F. Um, Shields High School, the Pacer Garden and Fishery, and and um, I'm gonna tell you, working with them kids is something else. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes, good. I'm sure they they enjoy it too. Yeah. Well, look at here. I believe we got the picture right. I believe we got the sound right. And uh, this is probably how I should have went last night instead of uh, trying to go Zoom. But anyway, God's good. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. You know, find my, my uh, extension cord here so I can plug this phone in. Okay. Uh, make sure it doesn't go down. 
Yeah. Battery's fully charged. I just, I just want to be sure before we get started. All right. Okay. Let me, let me get my cord. All right. We're about to talk to um, interview Miss Annette Watts Nunn, Birmingham first black female police chief. Uh, almost 23 years ago, former Mayor Bernard Kincaid appointed um, Annette Watts Nunn as Birmingham's first black female police officer. Uh, we had the opportunity to look at a video from uh, WVTM 13 News uh, from uh, March 8 of 2021 uh, where she made a video concerning uh, domestic violence and the impact it has on young people's lives. And uh, we are we are in the process of uh, interviewing some powerful black people that have impacted the history of this country and some firsts uh, for black women. And, 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 and today we are going to be talking about um, policing in America, the state of policing in America. Um, we invited several um, uh, people to um, make sure they be a part of this and uh, be everything ready for the uh, um, interview with Ms. Nunn. It's about um, two minutes before we go live. And uh, we are... Uh, okay, Ms. Nunn, if you are ready, we will begin. Okay. All right. All right. First, I want to say good evening and welcome. Good evening. Good evening. Um, um, I'll start again with uh, we interviewed Miss Annette Watts Nunn, a Birmingham first black female um, police officer, police chief rather, and um, she is going to be telling us what the impact that is on her life and how it has changed and what is being done in the light of what is taking place in America now, so far as policing. Ms. Nunn, you have the floor. Hey, hey, hey well, again, good, good, good evening, and thank you for having me. Okay. Um, Hold on just a second. I I can hear, I'm here, Mary, next door. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> Hold on just a minute. Hold on, let me see. Just hold on just a minute, Ms. Nunn. No problem. Uh, all right. Let me cut off one of, one of these uh, condenser microphones. Season open. Okay. Okay, Miss Noah. Let me put my headphone back on. Oh, she is in that washing. Lord have mercy. Let me see. Can I cut another one off? Hold on a minute.
Miss Nolan, I've been, <laughs> I've been just in Milan and Mercy. <laughs> oh. It's all right, baby. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. I believe we're ready this time. Okay. okay. All right, Miss Nolan, you got the flow. Minus the washing machine. <laughs> That's okay. I, I don't hear it. I don't know if anybody. Hear it. All right, go ahead. Got got to get that laundry done. They're not bothering. <laughs> I. Just... Oh, okay. Again, but uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here and glad we were able to get together uh, to talk. Uh, as you mentioned, I am the first. It always they always say the first African American uh, female chief of police in Birmingham. But you can say I'm the first female, period, because I'm the only one there's ever been. Hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, there will be another to follow. That's, that's always the hope when you open a door that somebody else will also come through through that same door, mm -hmm. which is what which what happened for me. Um, I'm, I say I'm a lifelong resident of Birmingham, and uh, at the age of 14, I decided that I wanted to go into law enforcement. And as you compare it to uh, compare what's going on today as to what led to my decision to go into law enforcement, uh, in my community of Inslee, uh, we had a lot of shot houses, illegal whiskey houses. And although I never saw money uh, change hands, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you saw a police car come down a dark alley, turn off the lights, and go into the back door of the shot house and come back out and, and ease on back down the alley, and that house never got busted. Uh, you knew what was going on. Somebody was getting paid. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, that's not what law enforcement is about. Uh, I'm going to, I decided I'm going to be a police officer to help make a difference in my community. So you still have uh, issues. Sit down through the years with, um, you're going to have a few bad people in every profession and law enforcement is no different. But, um, you know, I believe that the you know, majority of them are good. And if you can get good people in there that have uh, the best attitude, going for the right reasons, and hopefully they can help make a a cultural shift change in 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 organi any organization, not only just law enforcement, but any organization where anything is going on that's not uh, proper. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm I'm. Um... Uh, have the experience of working in corrections for 29 years at the Holman Prison at Atmore. From your standpoint as a policeman and uh, being a police chief and experiencing all of the years on the Birmingham Police Department and different departments in which you work your way up, what is your mindset so far as the state of policing in America right now in light of the the tragic uh, beating of the young man and the police officers there in Memphis. Well, as you said, I was I was in, with the Birmingham Police Department for 28 years, mm -hmm. going in right out of college. I actually hadn't finished college when I joined the police department. Um, coming from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, this is Black History Month, and anyone who knows anything anything about Black history knows the history of the city of Birmingham as it relates to uh, whether it's police department or fire. Just turn on the television and look at the archives, you'll see how uh, black Americans were being treated here in Birmingham, you know, being beaten dogs on them and fire hoses. So we know that there was uncalled for brutality then, and that's been 
I guess, a legacy that many chiefs, including myself, have tried to keep at the forefront of officers to let them know that, you know, we have a history that was not a good light for for police. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that we show the opposite of that as we inter- interact with the public. And as you look at what's going on now, you still have those, some people who enter law enforcement that uh, should not be there. Mm-hmm. They, you know, maybe their, their whole way of life was not conducive to deal, interacting with people. Uh, sometimes I felt as I looked at various uh, stories where uh, there's been a use of force by officers and someone, particularly an African-American's life has been taken. In some instances, I've wondered if that amount of force was used because people are fearful. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know they come from a culture they've never dealt with African-Americans. All they know is what some misguided person who knows nothing about African-Americans has have told them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where they're going and operating from a point of fear instead of going uh, to talk to someone. You know, community policing has been a, a tactic or a strategy that's been uh, touted for years that, you know, you don't just drive in the community, drive out, but you need to interact with the people that you are responsible for policing. You know, get to know them. Mm-hmm. And, and I would always tell them, you know, that community policing is not a philosophy. It has to be a way of life. It has to be something that's ingrained in you already that you want to do. Because if you don't, you're not going to do it properly anyway. I don't care how many rules and regulations you have or whatever else happens. If it's not in you, eventually whatever is in you will come out. Mm-hmm. Now, I, 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 yes, that's something that uh, we spoke of before, uh, and that is the psychological makeup a policeman and what it takes to be a policeman. And just like you say, community police, and you got to come in there and you got to uh, emerge yourself in that community, not just like you said, drive in and drive out and, and all you do, all you are, you are just an observer. You got to be interacting with the community people. Talk about some ways that can possibly change. There's all kinds of things that's going on now in policing and, and getting a person prepared to wear that badge and drive that car and have that gun on their side and that stick in their hand. From your perspective, what are some things that can be done now that will help increase the, I would just say viability, but the better policing in the, as the way things are here in this country right now? Well, we've had... Um you know, I think it was like 2017, 16, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when President Obama was still in office, they called for a uh, task force, President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Mm-hmm. And that task force made several recommendations, which I, mean, I've, I must admit, I've never fully read the whole report, just kind of glanced over it. But as I was looking at it, it's, it's a lot of things that's common sense mm-hmm. that... Uh, we should do. One of the things they said was that we should uh, change the culture of policing. Uh, you go from a mentality of being a warrior to a mentality of being a guardian. You're here to protect society, not just a, you know mm-hmm. a warrior to attack. You're going to be a guardian, which you know relates to uh, community policing. Now, I'm not naive to think that everybody's going to be there that loves you. 
Mm-hmm. You have to be on your P's and Q's. And that's, you know, you teach that in, in the academy, as you mentioned about uh, training. Uh, you're teaching what to look out for, but you also have to look for those individuals that have people skills, mm-hmm. that have the ability to communicate with individuals. And I'm afraid in this current generation that that skill has been lost mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of them, they don't interact with, 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 with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they, they're texting, you know, people are sitting right next to each other and they're texting each other. So they don't have the ability to read a person's uh, emotions or language, et cetera, the body language properly. Mm-hmm. And when you lose that, I, I can misread what you're saying or, uh, and I might take some more aggressive action than is necessary because I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have to have cultural awareness mm-hmm. because everybody's culture is not the same. Uh, you may misread what I'm doing. For an example, I remember several years ago, I went to Germany to visit a friend. And when I went up to the counter to pay for my items, I handed the person my money and they put they gave me the money back. They just laid it on the counter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming from Birmingham, Alabama, I was about to get a little upset. <laughs> like, what? What? You, they're trying to diss me. They don't want to touch my, won't touch me or something. And the lady that I was with, she said, no. She said, no, she was from there. She said, no, that's just their culture. They just, they do that for everybody. I was like, okay. Now, see, I would be getting upset about that when it was, was really nothing. So if you don't understand me and you're policing my community, mm-hmm. but you don't understand me, we can have problems. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things in, in Birmingham, I don't know if they still do it, but when our recruits were in the police academy, they had to visit the Civil Rights Institute. Mm-hmm. And while they were there, they were bringing individuals who had gone through the civil rights movement, who experienced violence at the hands of officers, so that these these uh, recruits would know the history of this city because they were still going to run into individuals who went through that. Mm-hmm. So that they could understand why people, if they stop somebody, why they may get a little offended or might have a different attitude. When you know that history, then you can see it in a different light. Mm-hmm. You, know, you still want to be safety-minded but just to have that uh, bit of information. Mm-hmm. And that, that report also talked about embracing community policing. This this is a philosophy that's been around for, I don't know how many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was with the police department, a young person, when Chief Johnny Johnson was the first African-American police, police chief, he made sure that uh, we uh, had community policing. That was one of the things that he did. Uh, he even made uh, a, a policy, whatever well, I say it was a policy, but he made an opportunity Mm-hmm. For anyone who wanted to volunteer for a, a public service organization within the city, some organization that helped the citizens, mm-hmm. they say you can, do, you can do up to an hour a week on duty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had no excuse not to do it. You can do it on duty. Mm-hmm. And I remember I took that chance. I was a captain. I, I volunteered with junior achievement to go into high elementary school to help teach our young people. And it was an eye-opening experience. Even though I grew up in the city and I you know, went to schools there, things had changed. And those young kids taught me things that I didn't know. God had me to see things in a different light. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I felt you know closer to them. I had a bond with that teacher. And you know, maybe a few years ago, I ran into a young lady. I didn't remember her. She said, I know you don't remember me. She said, but you came to my class doing junior achievement. That's like when they were in the first and second grade. Mm-hmm. So you have that community political philosophy where you are part of the community and you, you see, you give the 
uh, community a chance to have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to have people that can think about a problem, how to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things I said that, that contributed to my success. Mm-hmm. I mentioned, I don't know if it was tonight or when we was trying to get started last night about the crime reduction rate when I was the only captain to uh, reach that, the mayor's goals back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because of, I say, me going out there arresting the body. I didn't do anything, but the, the individuals who worked with me at that at North Precinct, they knew that if they came up with an idea for a strategy because we had the community policing philosophy, I involved the faith community, they had a voice, they knew that I would listen. My personnel knew that if they came up with an idea and it worked, they were going to get the credit for it. I encouraged them to think of alternative ways, even besides arresting people, that we could get the crime rate down. Mm-hmm. That's something that uh, we still need to do today. Some some people, when you try it, they say, well, you're soft on crime. No, it's just like a medical disease. Mm-hmm. If you don't ever get to the root cause, that disease eventually will kill you. Mm-hmm. So let's find out why this person is doing what they're doing and try to get them some help if possible. And it's not going to work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And also we need to, um, you know, be fair and impartial. We have laws on the books. You can't pick and choose who to enforce and you can't uh, be prejudiced. And, and, you know, we all have to admit that we, we have some implicit biases, mm-hmm. you know, if, in, in my neighborhood, <laughs> Which was all African American, even even as recent as a couple of years ago during the during the pandemic, when we were still having uh, virtual services at church, and I would have to go. I remember, mm. you know, our our church is located in where it used to be uh, public housing, but now they've remodeled a community. And I remember I looked out the window and I saw a vehicle, and it had nothing but white males in it. Mm-hmm. My employee said, well, "What are they doing here? Mm-hmm. Are they are they selling drugs? Are they trying to buy drugs or what?" But as I, as I watched them from a distance, they were trying, they were, they sent up some balloon type thing. They were doing some area photographs. Mm-hmm. So probably dealing with real estate. So we have to understand that we have, we all have some implicit biases. And if we can recognize that up front and not let them interfere with us being fair and impartial, that would be a help and could cut down on some of the uh, negative interactions that the communities have uh, with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And then we also have to uh, care about the officers' uh, safety and wellness. <clears throat> uh, you know, you know. Go, go ahead. You know, that you, what you're saying is that in this modern day of 2023, there is no need that a police officer should have cultural shock in doing his job. And and. and and community policing, like you said, it's it been around a long time. There are things that policemen can do and should be doing that are not being done. They are coming in with, like you say, not using their heads. What you say, what common sense in doing the job. I, 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 I absolutely agree with what, what you were saying. And, 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 and you know, and there's also, there's also, go ahead. There's also another issue that I uh, say, even when I was with the police department years ago, that the uh, the FBI was warning us mm-hmm. that these um, 
organizations, these racist organizations, were going to purposely try to plant people within law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And they were warning departments to look out for it. Mm -hmm. And we know, uh, we saw from uh, uh, January 6th, yeah. we saw law enforcement there that, that's tied to these organizations. So we know that it's happened. And some of them are, are still there. Mm -hmm. So it's incumbent upon um, officers that, the good officers, you know, out of 800,000, it, it used to be an estimated 800,000 in law enforcement across uh, the nation in the United States. Out of that 800,000, you got to have the, the majority that will speak out when they see these individuals operating within their department mm -hmm. and become part of the uh, strategy to root them out. Because when they do something that's uh, totally off base, whether uh -huh. it's taking someone's life or brutalizing someone, it doesn't matter their color or their ethnicity. You know, they, um, they need to be able to speak out and help rid the department of those people. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's, that, now that, that is absolutely a must. You gotta be able to get the bad apple out or it will rotten all of them. Uh, and I I, I I I totally agree with you. Now, even when my, as a correctional officer, one of the things that I pride myself on doing is being able to solve a situation in that prison there at Holman without writing an inmate up or sending him to SEG. Uh, I, I tried to find some kind of way in dealing with him and other inmates and talking to the captain how can we deal with this other than lock him up? And even that's when he's in population and locked up for life. How? How? And go ahead. Yeah, and some you can. They will listen to. Some people will listen to you. Everybody's not going to do. You have to do what you need to do. But some will listen. I remember. Uh, I was a. I was a lieutenant then. I was a, over the night shift, eleven to seven, at one of the precincts. And it was in the summer, and we got a call to one of the public housing communities that, that still has issues today. You, know, you see some of the homicides sometimes on the news. And it was a hot summer night, so when you're a hot summer night, you know everybody's going to come out if there's any type of, whether it's the fire department or police department comes in there. So by the time we get there, I mean, everybody's out surrounding this apartment and trying to find out it was, it was really nothing. It was a natural death. And what, what, what had occurred as the ambulance drivers were trying to get the remove the body from the apartment, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the opening was so narrow that it almost rolled off. So mm -hmm. they went back inside, pulled the ambulance around the back, and pulled the curtains in the front. And there was a young lady that was standing out front. I mean, she, she started cursing. It turned out it was the lady that was her grandmother that was deceased. Mm -hmm. And she was just cussing up and down. And I'm standing there. I, I can feel myself getting a little hot. Going like, you know, we really need to put her in jail. I said, if we try to take this girl to jail right now, I'm talking to myself. I said, we're going to have, we're going to have the biggest fight. We're going to put out a call for assistance to get in here. Mm -hmm. So I said, I asked her, I said, excuse me, young lady, uh, can I talk to you? And she was like, no, 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 you can't talk to me. She started cursing me. I said, let me talk to you. I said, do you know why they pulled around? She said, no, they're trying to hide what they're doing. They're doing something to my grandmother. I said, no, ma'am. And I explained to her what was going on, and they were just trying to be respectful of her grandmother. And then she said, Oh, okay. And then she walked off. 
The key and was a grandma. Like I wanted to, we just, you know, we just tried to sling and put her in jail. We'd have been in a riot. But you just remember that, you know, try to put some humanness in there, empathize with them. This is a, this is a touchy situation. Somebody's lost their relative. They might act a little out of the norm. And try to calm the situation down. But if you go in yelling word for word, et cetera, et cetera, situation just keeps attention, just keeps rising. And before you know it, you got a riot on there. Mm-hmm. Now that that right there, the key word was to get through to her, to cut through all that cussing that she's doing. When you said her grandmama, that brought it to another level. So far as she was concerned, in other words, that brought her off of her whatever she was on. So far as a mindset, my grandmama. My grandmother that does this or my grandma, you know, that changed the whole situation. Now that's good policing. Yeah. Using she was emotional. Yeah, yeah. Emotional. Cut through that emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um tell me this from um uh, what you've been able to see in policing so far as um the culture shock. Uh, all the impediments of doing police work that is effective in a community. Uh, every situation calls for a different different type of situation, but you got to be swift enough on your feet to use those situations. What would you do if you were police chief now in any number of the cities? And number and the number one thing that I want you to think about is black on black killing blacks. How would you possibly deal with that? That, that, I mean, I I know that's a difficult question, but how would you deal with it? (laughs) Uh, Indeed it is, and I'll say that it it was a problem during my tenure too. You know, people kind of forget things as time passes on. It tends to look better. Mm-hmm. I had someone that told tell me one day. They said, "Well, you haven't been homicides when you were in office." I said, "Yes, we did." I said, "We had a lot. We used to be in the paper all the time, and we would, you know, we tried. You know, we were trying different things. We had, you know, the faith community involved. You had youth programs. Um, you worked with other organizations that dealt with it. Uh, you did uh, domestic violence programs in place within the department, which was started, you know, under Chief Johnson, a whole unit for that. Uh, so it's, you know, but it, when it really boiled down to it, looking at the homicides that we had, mm-hmm. it was people that knew each other. Mm-hmm. I, I even, I even had, uh, it was some, it was some bookmarks that were made, some crime prevention strategies, well, just looking at the common factors in a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I used to tell individuals, say, well, you know, I'm scared to go this place, or I'm scared to go this place. I say, let me tell you something. If you don't, if you don't have an abusive partner that you're with, mm-hmm. if you don't sell drugs, if you don't hang out with criminals, your chance of being a homicide victim are very small. Mm-hmm. Now, not to say that you know innocent people don't get caught sometimes, mm-hmm. but if you well, those three things, your chances are very small mm-hmm. of becoming a victim of homicide. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's it's still that way today, although we got a lot of people who have issues and have no, no moral compass. Mm-hmm. 
Now, as I mentioned, I had the you know the faith community involved, and, and some of this I took a, I took a hit for in the media. You know, uh, one he used to one person just used to really ride me about it because I told him I said until you can change a person's heart, mm-hmm. I can lock you up for ninety nine years. Mm-hmm. If your heart is the same when you get out, ninety nine years in a day, you gonna go back to doing the same. Same thing. Like, I took a hit, and you know, you you worked in the prison system, and I'm sure you know firsthand. Uh, I even had, like I say, I had a we had a an editorial battle going with a local reporter, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> writing back and forth about these issues, and I and I wrote that in 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 an editorial, and there was a young man. I, I've got that article stored around here in, in this box of stuff that I brought from the office. It's packed away. Mm-hmm. A young man in West West Jefferson Prison, but it's called Donaldson now. Yeah. He wrote, and he wrote to the to that same newspaper. He wrote his own editorial, and he said, "He said Chief Nunn is exactly right. He said I'm in here now for murder, and nothing changed me." He said until I gave it. He said until he gave his life to Christ, mm-hmm. and he changed. He said because if that change hadn't come, he said nothing else would stop him from killing anybody else. He said he was very regretful and remorseful now that he had had a change in his heart. He said, but he, she's right. She said, you change a person's heart. They'll still do it. Mm-hmm. You know what? I I like what you said in regards to black on black crime. I'm wondering today how much is that being talked about from the pulpit, from the school level, from wherever the crimes are appearing. You know, if you don't get in the arena where folks are getting shot and killed. In other words, your lifestyle is not taking you into the arena of drugs and whatever else where folks are, are, are shooting and killing each other or in fights, uh, domestic situations, whether, it, whether it's a husband and wife or family. Pretty good, your chances are pretty good that you're not going to get shot or you're not going to uh, be a, a black-on-black statistic. Now that, that now now that 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 absolutely is sense. In other words, don't get in the arena, don't get in that atmosphere, don't get in that culture. Stay away from it. If your buddies are in it, don't go with him. That I oh I like that. <laughs> I I wrote I wrote that down to make sure make sure I. And this, I and this, and this. That's part of the reason why. I was gonna say that's what you were mentioning. That's part of, uh, I say, my career path after I left the police department the way it did. I had decided before I left law enforcement that when I did leave, mm-hmm. that I wasn't interested in being a chief anywhere else or working as a law enforcement officer anywhere else. I said that what I wanted to do would be either work at a small college mm-hmm. teaching or. A police academy, or work for a nonprofit that couldn't normally afford my services. Mm-hmm. And so, when the YWCA asked me to be a part of their domestic violence uh, program because mm-hmm. of a grant that they were trying to uh, get, you know, I told them, "Let me pray about it." And I let them know, which I, you know, I already knew that domestic violence, people growing up in violent households, mm-hmm. breeds generations of that behavior. 
it affects them, you know, they be, they could either become a, an abuser themselves or a victim themselves or because their whole behavior and demeanor is changed because they're growing up in a violent household, they can do a whole lot of other crimes. Mm-hmm. And that's why we, uh, we had a domestic violence program because if you can, I say nip it in the bud or get people services there to help them to see that they've got an issue, whether it's with their children, uh, children who grow up in those households, that uh, you can get services to them so that they don't repeat that behavior, then you can you can chip away at crime. So I wanted to be part of some of the solutions that, you know, need some feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's why I ended up being there for 10 years instead of the one year that I was supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, I could have stayed there beyond the 10, but I left, you know, to help uh, planning to help take care of my, my mom. Mm-hmm. And it gave me the opportunity to talk, to go into places. I talked to anybody that would let me talk to them about domestic violence prevention. I would do it. I talked to ministers. I talked to educators, young people, older people, men, women. It it didn't matter. Uh, Trying to to give them, I say the warning signs to look out for and let Mm -hmm. them know resources that were there so that they can let someone know that if they were in that situation, you don't have to take somebody's life. You don't have to stay there until somebody takes your life. Because I had, when I talk to um, ministers, sometimes, you know, you have some that don't believe that women can tell them anything. Um, but mm-hmm. I would, when, they, when I would run into those individuals, uh, I always say God would open up something. He would give me information that I wasn't even looking for. Because mm-hmm. I was getting ready to prepare to go to speak to a group. And I was sitting in my computer when this video thing popped up. And it was a story about um, a minister doing counseling in the office in Florida, mm-hmm. a couple. who would tell them, if you got domestic violence, abuse like that going on, uh, you don't do couples counseling because that puts that person even in more danger. Because if, if, you are, if I'm afraid of you, I'm not gonna tell anybody anything mm-hmm. in front of you or I'm gonna lie. So it's mm-hmm. not gonna do any good. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to get crap beat out of me when I leave. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I would tell some people that they would, they wouldn't, they didn't want to believe it. And this, but I would show them this video news story where this pastor had this couple in the office in Florida doing couples counseling and thought that the husband was getting up to get a pen or something out of the pocket, and he pulled out a gun and shot the wife right there in the office, shot and killed her in the pastor's office. So Ooh. that kind of gets their attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the reason it was behind the, the video you mentioned. Uh, we call it The Price of Love, which is it's a parody of a song called Bust the Windows Out Your Car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was getting ready to talk to a, a group of young people about how the music they listen to affects the way they think, because I truly believe that. Mm-hmm. I know some don't, but I do. Mm-hmm. If you listen to something long enough, it just gets in your head. You think it's right. So, you know, I was I was the oldest advocate in the office at that time. And I asked one of the young people, I said, well, what's a song that's out there now that's, that advocates violence that can turn somebody's head? They say, oh, you need to listen to Bust the Windows Out Your Car. And I was like, that's not a real song. They like, oh, yes, it is. No, it's not. I said, go look at it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I did. And sure, there's a lady named Jasmine Sullivan that's, that sang the, the original. And so I, I said, that's what I was seeing in domestic violence court. I had had individuals actually come in and say, I did a Jasmine Sullivan on him. Mm. I didn't know who Jasmine Sullivan was. But we had a guy who busted every window out of the car, and then he pulled off the rearview mirror and had beaten the woman. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So that explains where it came from. It opened my eyes. I said, I need to rewrite this song because people are listening to this and they're doing this behavior and thinking you just walk off like she did in the video when they didn't realize that the laws in Alabama had just changed. And if you got a domestic violence conviction, mm-hmm. there were certain jobs you can even get. Mm-hmm. You can take certain exams and they didn't know. That. So that was the reason behind it and to use it for a teaching tool. So I rewrote it and got with Dr. Henry Panyon and we were able to get a grant from Verizon Wireless at the time, who does a lot of domestic violence work. And uh, we did that music video. Mm-hmm. And, and I had a lady before we got the grant, I did it for a young people's forum with uh, Delta Sigma Theta. They have a, a GEMS program, I think that's what they're, that's what they did with teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And I had to sing it live. And that Monday, it was on a Saturday, that Monday, one of the young ladies' mothers called, my, called me at the office. She said, we really appreciate that. She said, my, my daughter was singing that song all the way home. So mm-hmm. it's getting into them. And then it has the, the domestic violence hotline number in the middle. So if somebody just thinks they're being entertained, they can get that information and uh, share it with someone and hopefully save somebody's life. Mm-hmm. One of the people who helped us on that video project didn't know about the services. And they were actually in an abusive situation and they learned information and got help and able to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So we have to use God has given us God uh, talents, whatever that talent might be to hopefully help somebody else. And that's why, you know, we did that video when I did the, the gospel album, all the, all the proceeds from that album went to the YWCA's domestic violence program. It, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't something for me to get, get paid for. I just wanted to help save a life. And I say, mm-hmm. if you can save one, mm-hmm. then that's, that's, that's good. Now that, those things that you're saying now is, uh, I I don't consider them to be um, something that can't be used. Those things are still effective now. Truth, I don't care how old or how one may consider to be outdated, truth will cut through. It may take time, but truth will cut through. And and that right. that that video that you did about. Uh, I, I I think you said what is what the price of love of uh-huh, the price of love yeah one of my coworkers named it mm-hmm. yeah that that and, you know when you when you're talking to people or whatever you're doing especially when you're dealing with young people mm-hmm. they have to you know they can read you pretty well mm-hmm. they got to feel like they can trust you too mm-hmm. in order to listen if they want to listen to you you can't you know how you come in talking to a person or interacting with them, you can either turn them off mm-hmm. or they will give you an opportunity to at least tell them what you tell them what you're selling to see mm-hmm. if they're gonna buy it. Yeah, yeah. If you come in with an off the wall attitude, they're gonna shut you down before you even come in. <laughs> I I I found that from uh, being the public address system at uh, at Jeff Shields High School for all the sports activities and stuff. And plus, uh, head of the garden and fishery. I found out this past couple of years, more students speak to me. Like, you know, like I don't go up to them, you know, I, well, I do go up to them, but like, say, for instance, I'm in the garden, or I'm in the fishery or something, and they'll come by there and they'll just holler out, Hey, Mr. Howard. Now, several years ago, that wasn't happening. It was because of what you were saying earlier. They, find out that okay 
you are faithful, you are here every day, you, you know what I'm saying? That is another thing that policemen need to understand as well to make sure that they have an outstanding, um, a good uh, effect as a policeman in a, in a, in a community with community policing. That's some good stuff, Ms. Nolan. They, 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 they told they, they verified, you know, that you were the real deal. You were there because you, you cared about them. Yeah. Nobody was making you come. Yeah. But you cared about them. Yeah. You know, when we had, um, there was an officer, Mary Smith, who uh, retired from Birmingham and went to work for a neighboring city, uh, Fairfield. Uh, she was killed with, right within the first month that she went there. When when she passed, you saw so many young people that talked about how she helped them, how Officer Smith did and what she did for them and how she interacted with them and how she inspired them. Uh, that's what you want to see. She was, you know, she was ambushed. Uh, somebody walked up from behind her while she was dealing with somebody else. She didn't, she didn't even see them walk up. Mm -hmm. So you have people these 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 especially when you deal with young people they're they're looking for the real deal and and older ones too you know they they're they're reading us they're watching us uh, that's one of the things i had to keep in mind you know i wanted to do the right thing because i always felt i always knew god was watching me first mm -hmm. but then individuals that i've i've said something to them i asked them to act a certain way and then if i get out and they see me doing just the opposite and i've lost all that that trust that they might have had in me, even with my own my own children, mm -hmm. uh, I had to keep that in mind. That would that you know, people can say things to you, come at you from all different angles, and they just make you want to go left. Um, but you have to think about who's watching me. I need to do the right thing. I've got to be an example. Um, you know, when I work when I was working in jail. And remember one night they, they brought somebody in. I mean, this person had thousands of dollars on them. And I'm sitting there looking at all this money that we counted. Now, your little, the little devil on your shoulder can say, you know, you can take your little bit. Nobody ever know. This is before you had cameras everywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm going like my head and say, uh, Satan, you get behind me because I, God sees everything that I do. Man may not see it, but I got I to gotta, I know that he watches me. So that's what I mean by you have to have you need people in positions that have a moral compass. Everybody not might not believe in God, they might not believe in Jesus Christ as I do, but they've got I would always tell officers, you need to have some higher power that you believe in if you're gonna keep your sanity in mm -hmm. uh, in this and, and stay on the straight and narrow in this position. So if not, you can see things that can drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. I I I'm, I was making some notes of uh, some of the things that you have said here in regards to black-on-black um, black statistics of black killing blacks, and one of the things that I noted about that, as you as you said before, is uh, so far as black-on-black black, uh, crime and death, stay out of the arena. And then the other one is that uh, so far as policing in a community. Build some trust in that community as a policeman. Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. build some trust in that community. That'll help you in that community. And I'm I'm reminded of what you were saying about situations at Holman before I left I was in control of number three cubicle I be on the right hand side was all of the mental cases that was in the prison. 
that the hospitals handle. On the left-hand side was when a person gets sentenced and they get the death sentence, they come to this section. That was on my uh, left-hand side. I control the access to that section, people that go in there. And every once in a while, every time they bring an inmate in, I would go down there, Miss Nunn, and the first thing I would ask them, even though they had received the death sentences for whatever type death penalty uh, they had, you know, the sentence for doing, whatever tremendous crime they had done. And the first thing that I would ask them is, Nunn, who gave you your sentence? Most of them started out with the state of Alabama, county, Bravo, district, tournament. But the next question I asked you, I said, is that a man that gave you that sentence or did God give you that death sentence? And when I say, did God give you that death sentence? The one that was going to change, you could see a light come on in their eye. In other words, even though man has given me a death sentence for what I did, God has not given me that death sentence yet. And that right there was the most of the time was the turning point for most of them on, on death row. They end up coming off of death row and ending up in, in population still able to be alive. And that's one of the things about policing that for people that are policemen like you and have the experience, they really need to begin to do that instead of being just, what you say, uh, cookie cutter police, as you might call them. Go out of the get out of the box like you did. Yeah. R right. Um, Go ahead. I was, you know, even as we have um, these issues, these issues that are going on to, right now, uh, you know, the, the protests and etc. I we know that nationwide that everybody's got a shortage of police officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a police officers and corrections. And I saw a story on the news the other night that the state of Alabama is trying to hire 700 Ooh, yeah. officers. Uh, I was like, wow, good luck with that one. Mm -hmm. um, and even with, you know, with Birmingham, they said, you know, like maybe 100 officers short. And, and other places, departments are two, three, four hundred officers, these larger ones. So, in during the protests, I would like to see some of those individuals who say, well, you know, you're not treating us right, et cetera, et cetera, go into law enforcement. Yeah. You come in and make a change. That's that's why I came in. It's not something, you know, there were not many African-Americans with the police department and there were not many females. Matter of fact, Birmingham was under a consent decree because there had been a federal lawsuit brought and Birmingham was now under that consent decree that they had to increase the ranks of minorities. Mm -hmm. uh, including African-Americans and women at the time back in 1980 when I joined. So come become a part of the solution. No, you, you're not going to get a big glorious salary. You know, it's, it's better than it used to be. But, uh, and there's no amount of money anybody can pay you that, can, that you would feel uh, covers the cost of your life. Mm -hmm. So it's, it has to be, as it was for me, it was a heartfelt commitment. Mm -hmm. This was this was not a job for me. This mm -hmm. was a career. Yeah, I mean, this was what I this was what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. and I don't regret it. Everything everything didn't go right all the time. There were issues, but again, scripture would always guide me to say, 
I got to do my job as pleasing to God and not under man. Mm-hmm. So, but it was a career. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I, um, I, I really enjoyed talking to you about um, the cultural policing and how it can change and what we need to do to change it. Um, but there is one thing that is uh, really rearing its head now is that the basic stuff that we have been talking about is being lost at home. Compassion. Oh, you got to have compassion to be a police. Empathy. You, oh, how how in the world can you be a police without empathy? You know what I'm saying? And then, and, and most of all, real love. It doesn't matter about the color of the skin. I know we, we touched on this last night. How did God cut you through that stuff? What I mean, I mean the devil is everywhere, you know. And we touched on it a little bit last night. How did God cut you through that 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 haze of that or that curtain of uh, not caring, no compassion, no empathy? In other words, just bust their head. How did God cut you through that? Well, it, it was put into me from from being a child to to care about others and to you got to be able to control your temper too. Because mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid, I had asthma real bad, mm -hmm. and whenever I would get angry or upset, you know, I would hold things in. I was I would have an asthma attack, and my mama told me she said, "All right, you keep doing that. You're gonna choke up and die. Do you want to die?" I was like, "But no, I don't want to die. So you know, I got to learn how to control this and do better with it." And and then there was an instance that something happened. I won't go into what happened, but I literally threw somebody across the room because they were about to injure somebody else. And I didn't remember doing it. I didn't remember putting my hands on them. Mm -hmm. But it was just that, like I said, that adrenaline flow that you need to protect somebody. Mm -hmm. So I was saying then, I cannot allow myself to ever reach that level that I can't remember what I did. Mm -hmm. So I got I to I remain calm. But I was, you know, I've been raised, I was raised in a godly household. My mom, she, you know, she took us to church. When she couldn't take us to church, she made sure we got there. My dad didn't go, but he made sure we went. Mm -hmm. And we were taught about love. We taught about Christ. That was embedded in me. You know, I, 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 was, I confessed my faith in Christ at the age of eight. I wasn't following anybody else. I was going on what I believed. And even coming into the position, I was coming in because of Christ in my life. And mm -hmm. I wanted to help. Mm -hmm. Help my community, and I believe that was the way to do it, and that would control my actions. Now, if I needed to take corrective action, if I needed to put my hands on somebody, I could do it, but I would be really justified. I didn't, I didn't have to make up a reason. I didn't have to lie about doing whatever I did. Mm -hmm. There was only one time that I can remember that I really did something, and I, I had to apologize to God for that. But I, but I, <laughs> uh, this guy that had this Ku Klux Klan card and wearing a KKK belt. Uh, when I was working in the jail, mm -hmm. I didn't say what I did, but it wasn't right. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to put, meet with the Lord on that one. Mm -hmm. But these other things, it was I knew God was watching me, mm -hmm. and He He wanted us to love. He He sacrificed His life on the cross, and He didn't do anything wrong. He did that for me. So I say, well, you know, Christ did that. Surely I can take some of this other stuff 
I even had to use scripture against some of them. Even <laughs> some of one of my officers. God bless his soul, dear departed. <laughs> uh, but I mean, he almost he he almost really took me there. Mm-hmm. I had to literally get up out of my chair and tell. I had to quote scripture to him and say, you know, the Bible says that when they didn't believe Christ, he said, "Don't believe what you're saying. Shake the dust off your feet." Mm-hmm. I told him, I said, that's what I'm doing with you. I'm shaking the dust off my feet. And mm-hmm. I walked away from him. He was following me. I said, don't follow me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go back in there. And I went on into my office and I closed the door. And I hit the table at me because he was really getting me up to him. But you got to realize that that's part of what they, what I now know is what they call mindfulness. Yeah. You know your body reactions. So they're teaching you these methods of how to calm yourself down. And calm yourself down. But that's what the Bible and the Word of God did for me. Mm-hmm. I would, you know, I'd be praying about things. I'd read scripture and call it because this, you know, I wasn't a cursor, but I used to tell people, don't don't let this come to me a fool. I know words you never even heard before. My dad mm-hmm. used to make up, so <laughs> it's, it's Christ that's controlling my, <laughs> controlling yeah. my mouth, yeah. and my mind. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it is, and and we got to get, we got to, that's that's really the answer. You know, people don't want to hear that, and you get criticized for it. I got criticized for it. But I still believe that is the answer that, you know, we, I had a, we talk about programs. I had a project, I called it the Nehemiah, Nehemiah project. Mm-hmm. Because, and this was when I was in the chief's office that I had this vision using the faith community, mm-hmm. just like in the book of Nehemiah, if anybody reads the Bible. Yeah. When they said they couldn't rebuild the wall of Jerusalem because things were just so bad, they couldn't do it. Right. They got it done in real time. Because everybody worked on the part of the wall where they were located. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, if we had, like we got a, I don't know how it is in Beatrice, but in Birmingham, you got churches on every corner. That if we had the faith community mm-hmm. to work on that area where they were located, mm-hmm. we got had all the city departments, a commitment from the city that where you're getting ready to do revitalization, before you do that, you send in all the other city agencies, law enforcement to clear up the criminals, uh, public works to clean it up, code enforcement to get the other things done. Everybody's attacking that same area. And then you populate it with good people that's going to keep it up, mm-hmm. good, hardworking people that's going to take care of it once you leave. Then you go do another section. And pretty soon, you've got the areas cleaned up instead of doing like we normally do. You put a task force in there to, to clean it up. And then when you leave and go to another section, it's just like roaches. They come right you come back. run back. Yeah, they run right back and mess it up again. But if we would, if we would just be committed to taking care of what we have and putting God first, I know it'll work. Mm-hmm. Now I see how you got that sixteen percent reduction in crime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! That's great. Well, um, I have. Um, uh, we've been at it now for almost an hour. I, I want to say this. I I really thank you for taking the time to sit down and as, as they call me and be out to old Freddie Howard. <laughs> they, they, uh, they have a perception of who you it's are. It's been a pleasure. Been my pleasure. Huh? <laughs> Most people have a perception of who you are yeah. until they find out who you are. And that's one of the things that me right. and we are doing now with our newspaper here in Beatrice. 
and that's one of the things that the people that our uh, uh, our editors and the folks that are advisors and that write grants for us is who is in your community and how well do you know your community and that's the key to a good policeman too the district that you walk in how well do you know it yeah right yeah I remember I had when, when I was a rookie and I was training and then I got off the training car and they had me working by myself it was this area one it was a high crime beat but I love that beat. Yeah. Because I knew people that lived on that beat from 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 where I uh, when I was growing up, we used to go visit. Yeah. So I had places I could stop, and I go in the house, and they feed me and stuff. Man, I hate it when they move me from there. People would tell me stuff. You know, you need to watch out for this person, such and such. And then they know I'm not gonna tell. Mm -hmm. And they told me we used to go and deal with it. And and people would tell. They would give me information. I think that's another reason that we have crimes that that go up or your solvability rate goes down, is because People they don't they don't live in the cities that they police. Mm -hmm. They drive in, they do a little stuff. What do you say? They do their hours and they drive out. But with me, I I lived here. I grew up here. And sometimes people I went to school with they end up getting booked in jail, mm -hmm. or I end up stopping on the streets. And people see you, and like you mentioned, people don't really know you. They had this perception of you. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, when I was chief, I was I, remember I was shopping in a grocery store, and this lady walked up to me, and she said, oh, I didn't know you did things like this. I thought you had people to shop for you. <laughs> I said, I don't have overlooking money. I have to do stuff for myself. I said, I have to clean. I have to shop. I have to cook. I have to wash. I have to get my kids to school. <laughs> that, rem that reminds me when we started the interview. You said them clothes got to be washed. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, I am no different than anybody else, except for one thing: you don't see me doing the same things that you do. Right? Yeah, I love that. I love and, that. Know, and I and I think you know you you mentioned something similar to that earlier, but as we want officers to get to know the community, mm -hmm. we need the community to get to know their officers. That is. Get, get to see them as human, human beings. Yeah. When when I went to work, I wanted to come back home to my family too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I wasn't going to do anything that it took for me to get back, you know, legally. Do not not abuse anybody else. But I I was afraid of not. Being, one of my prayers at a scene where a young teenager was shot. His name was Bunky McCain. I remember his real name. But he was a star football player at one of the high schools. They had just won the game. They had gone to a pizza hut to celebrate. And somebody shooting at somebody else they had a beef with in a different car shot and killed him. Mm. And I remember standing there at that pizza hut telling the sergeant, I was a lieutenant, I told him, I said, my, my kids were small and probably like six and four years old. Mm. I said, you know, this is why I'm going to lock them up in the garage until they get grown because I want to see them to be able to get grown. And my prayer to God was, Lord, let me live to see them get grown and on their own mm. because some officers didn't make it. They, you know, they killed a lot of duty and they got small kids. Mm. So we have to see each other as human beings, mm -hmm. not just as, don't just see the blue suit because mm. they have the same issues. That's one of the, I didn't mention this, that's one of the projects I was working on now called mm -hmm. the Vicarious Trauma Response Initiative where officers, first responders, and people who work with uh, 
individuals who are traumatized a lot of time it could be school teachers it could be ministers mm-hmm. listening to what their parishioners are telling them they need to realize how listening to those tra- traumatic experiences and being exposed to them affect them and affect their behavior it can actually uh change the way that they they feel it it causes them to lose some of that empathy because mm-hmm. because they become cynical and pessimistic and affect their home life that's why you know we say that you know you have a high divorce rate, high substance abuse rate, high suicide rate among law enforcement because these things are stress. And they don't realize mm-hmm. the stress mm-hmm. and and the trauma. So that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I'm that I'm doing right now with first responders and those in helping professions, so that if because if they're dealing with these issues and they're changing, their whole personality is changing because of what they're seeing and what they're having to deal with. We want them to understand this is what's happening is normal. If it's too bad for you, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't don't mm-hmm. let it be a stigma that you don't want to ask for help, so that you can continue to function and not end up as another statistic. Mm-hmm. Now, stress almost killed me when I first began as a correction officer. It mm-hmm. almost killed me. Um, I had bleeding ulcers real bad, and finally, um, when I was in the hospital, my I remember just as good, Dr. Downing. He came in and said, well, you got them cars now. Oh, I know you got that uh, new or lawn woman. You know, he just kind of ragged me. And then he said, oh, you don't want it. You want to leave it here for somebody else. You talking about getting your attention? Here I was, a policeman at home and driving 100 miles a day and trying to build a house and I was letting the pressure of being in that prison them eight hours and sometimes 12 hours a day and trying to live, I was letting it kill me until I realized that you got your values placed in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. That's stress. And that's what we're trying, that's, what we're, that's the message that we're trying to get them to see. Yeah. That it can kill you. Yeah. It's, you know the the average the average lifespan of a police officer is fifty nine years. Mm-hmm. Fifty nine years, mm-hmm. twenty years less than the average population. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, I say, well, I've already beat the odds. I'm 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 past that, and I'm and I'm continue to move on for a few more years. I said, because I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let y'all keep. When I became chief, I told I we had to do a fit check, mm-hmm. and the guy who was taking my blood pressure, he said, you. He took it twice. He said, your blood pressure is really good. I said, I'm not letting y'all folks kill me. I said, mm-hmm. before I let you kill me, I will leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you, you don't have the, you know, it's another thing, part of the program, we teach them things that they can do mm-hmm. to decrease, relieve the stress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it can kill you. Mm-hmm. I, I, wrote, I wrote down uh, several things from our conversation and so far as a, a policeman becoming a better policeman, I got culture, love, community policing, psychologically testing yourself. And I think psychologically testing police need to be done. Not no, you know, like you were saying the other night, you indicated that was the last thing that you, I think they used to do it like every five, six, seven, eight months or so. Just to see where, what 
policing has already did to your mindset and 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 to be able to sense the stress it you know they used to call it the silent killer the same thing like a heart attack in other words you you think you ain't under no pressure you are under pressure and and then then the uh um the, the last one I wrote down was empathy. From our conversation and your history and your knowledge of policing, what would you add to that list that a policeman need to have as a human being to, to deal with 2023 society today? Based on... The, Knowing that they ain't getting nothing at the house now. I mean, some of them are. But what society is putting out is like a bad part that you order for your car. If the part ain't going to fit the car, guess what? Even though it's a brand new part, it's useless. You can't do nothing with it. You can take it back, get your money back. But what, what would you add to a policeman that would help us today? in 2023? I mean, it, it's, it's really, I think, a sense of purpose. You have to understand purpose, what your purpose yeah. is. Uh -huh. uh, what, what is the mission of your law enforcement career? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going in there, your mission, you you think it's to come in and thump heads, then you you need to stay out. Mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's coming in to, as we say, go from that um, that warrior mentality to, to a guardian, you are there to guard the peace, guard those enemies. Most most people, most people are good. You know, you gotta the bad ones make it bad for the rest. Um, and you you understand the mission is to be a protector of the community, to help make it to help make it better. And when things get bad, look back on what what was my mission. And if you feel that you can no longer do that mission. Then you need to change your mission, mm -hmm. or leave, or get out of there. Yeah, uh, get out of it. And mm. and you you mentioned uh, when you mentioned about the testing every eight months. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that's part of that recommendations I said that came out from that twenty first century policing when they said pay attention to officer wellness and safety. Mm -hmm. They said we wouldn't call it an evaluation because it that has a negative connotation to it. Like mm -hmm. okay, well, I'm gonna lose my job. Yeah, but they. It's the language is important. We say like a wellness. You're doing a wellness check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and it, and it make it and make it mandatory that you have to do it at least you know once a year, mm -hmm. so that you know you can go in there and and stare at the psychologist or whomever it is if you want to, mm -hmm. but because they're gonna have to build up a rapport where they will talk to them, but it's mandated that you go, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that hopefully you will get comfortable with that person and you know. Uh, as part of within law enforcement, they recommend that you talk to a psychologist that has a knowledge of police work, so that something that you say won't be, I say, held against you. Because you know, just take for instance, right when I say, you know, I feel like I just kill him. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm just blowing steam. If you're mm -hmm. familiar with law enforcement, mm -hmm. but if you're not, and you say, oh, they're threatening to kill somebody, I got a report. Mm -hmm. You don't want anybody to do that. Yeah. But you have a wellness check-in. And, and when I do trainings, I tell them, just like you have a maintenance schedule for your car, mm -hmm. you get it checked up, you right. change the oil, you right. the tires to take care of it, to extend the life of it. 
that's what you got to do for your people mm -hmm. and from an organizational level mm -hmm. and an individual level right and just like you getting proficiency training with weapons and hand-to-hand -hand combat you need the same type of proficiency with your mind yeah 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 right in other words well, I'm, I'm learning since I've been since I've been doing this, uh, we're working with this brand. I'm learning a lot. I had to pray about taking taking the position because I knew it was going to bring up stuff that I had buried that I didn't want to deal with anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm learning stuff. Uh, you know, like oh wow, that's that's really. I wish I had known this earlier mm -hmm. because even when you talk about the bad decisions that some officers make, mm -hmm. well, if they go in and they understand that when they're under distress, how they say, you know, your lizard brain kicks in and it cuts off your, your prefrontal cortex, your thinking yeah. brain, that you're just automatically doing certain things that the body is built to do. Well, if I understand that and I know that in order to get 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 back into my state that I need to be in to make solid, rock-solid decisions, mm -hmm. then I, there are certain things that I need to do to get back on keel, then I know that I can do those things so that I can make better decisions. If it's affecting my home life, my personal life, well, I can do this so that I can be better at home, I can be better on my job, and I'm not trying to take out stuff on people that I run into yeah. on the streets just because I can do it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, Miss Norman, I'm gonna tell you, I enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> uh, Thank you, I enjoyed talking with you too. <laughs> you know what, I, th I thought about uh, last night when we kept getting interrupted, I said, uh, God wasn't ready for this, he, he, he had something else for us to do, and, I guess this is what this is what it was <laughs> to get it down to the real stuff. Yeah. Yes. Well, I um, I'll let you close it out um, in whatever way that you um, deem necessary. And um, I'm always praying in, on my in my broadcast. So if you want to do that, you can. But I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> but uh well I just you got you, in and we'll let you we'll let you pray it out. I just make a final comment that I would just say that Okay, go ahead. We have to we as a nation, uh we have to remember that we are all people. We're all humans. Mm -hmm. Uh we need to try to understand each other, get to know each other. Um and some understand that we have more things in common that we do than we do differences. Mm-hmm. And you know, put the hatred aside. You know, mm -hmm. Hatred is looming in its ugly head like it had it did back in the sixties. Mm -hmm. We got to nip that in the bud and come to know that we need to help one another and mm -hmm. not fight against each other. As Dr. Lowry used to say, you know, we can't turn we have to turn towards each other and not turn on each other. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, we got we got to keep doing that. And mm -hmm. we come together with law enforcement and our and our citizens get to know one another and realize that we're in this boat together. Now, as I said, when I was in office, I should tell officers, the slogan was dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. That was the motto, dignity and doing your job with dignity and respect. I say, even if you had to shoot somebody, mm -hmm. you do it respectfully. Mm -hmm. They say, what do you mean by that? I say, when the threat is over, it's over. You don't do any extra. Mm -hmm. So we treat each other with dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Ms. Nunn. We just got You're through welcome. talking to um, the former um, police chief of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, the first black female. 
Miss Annetta Watts Nunn. Uh, I have enjoyed profoundly her insight, her thoughts, and her wisdom so far as uh, being a policeman. And I hope she is a consultant to somebody, some police department somewhere. I don't know that to be true, but I hope she is still active and she is still active. Let us pray. Our Father and Savior Jesus Christ, I thank you for this opportunity to sit down with Ms. Nunn, a policeman, a lady that's a part of uh, my family and my son's family. I thank you for the opportunity to get to know her better and knowing that the heart that she possesses is a heart led by God. And I thank you for this opportunity. May what we said and what we captured here today in words be helpful in bringing somebody to the realization that crime has a price. Anything that you do has a price and that whatever culture that you chose to ignore or disrespect, that you are disrespecting yourself because we're all in this together. These many blessings we ask in that son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ms. Noah. Amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. I'll 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 I'll, I'll see you different in the church in Inslee from now on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You, you didn't know I could talk that much, did you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Have a good night. All right, good night. Thank you. God bless. You're welcome. God bless you. All right. Okay. Let's go ahead and end.